Welcome to the Real Water Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Albert. And I'm your co-host, Ranjeev Kush. Okay, Ranjeev, here it is. The first Real Water episode. I'm pretty pleased with it. Uh, yeah, Jeff, it, you know, it's a little long. I, I know, it's, it's a bit longer than we'd originally envisioned. It, it clocks in at roughly an hour. I don't know. That's that's not a bit longer. It's about twice as long as we were originally thinking. <sighs> True. All right, all right, but but look, it, it's. I just think it's really good. I agree. It is good. So we'll just have to invite our listeners to stick with it and enjoy the ride. Our guest Hubert Genie has been working for decades on water service delivery, primarily in Southeast Asia. He began in the private sector and then transferred over to the World Bank. From there, he went on to work with the Asian Development Bank, the Asian Investment and Infrastructure Bank, and then the Green Climate Fund. Currently, he's consulting with UNICEF. And in the interest of full disclosure, he's also someone who we know because he's someone with whom we've worked in the past. Years ago, Hubert and his team at the Asian Development Bank gave a grant to Aquaya to test the idea of expanding the water supply responsibilities of a provincial water utility in central Vietnam to include rural communities as well. And uh, during that project, we also evaluated water treatment technologies uh, for those communities. And, and now Hubert is on the advisory board of the Real Water Project. Great. So what were the objectives for our discussion with Hubert? Now, water sector development has advanced dramatically in Southeast Asia over the last 50 years. In some countries, such as South Korea, even outpacing economic growth. We spoke with Uber to dig into the factors that drove this rapid development, um, including the roles of the multilateral development banks and using Vietnam as a case study. So again, it's a long episode. Stay with us. But at the end, Ranjeev and I will attempt to sum up the key takeaways of the conversation. Here's the interview, our very first. We know you're going to enjoy it. Hubert Jenny, keeping it real with real water. I remember when we were first uh, speaking with colleagues at the Asian Development Bank about options for um, working on uh, their the, conducting research in the context of some of their large. Uh, development programs, uh, one of the senior officials there uh, actually told me, he said, you know, if you want to do something new and innovative with us, your best option is to work with Hubert Genie. And clearly then our experience with Hubert um, taught us a lot. And I'm looking forward to uh, discussing some of those lessons on this show. Hubert, we, we want to welcome you. Um, we're thrilled that you're uh, that you're willing to take some time to, to talk with us. Thank you, thank you uh, for welcoming me, for giving me this opportunity, and also for your very kind words. Well, uh, we, we've I think we've underplayed it, Hubert. Actually, so Hubert, I thought we we would start just by asking about how you began uh, in the water sector. I studied to to be a medical doctor wanted to work in an emergency unit. By talking to my uncle who, who, who set up the emergency unit uh, in uh, Bordeaux in southern France, he told me, why don't you join the fireman corps? Because the firemen, if you are interested in the side of emergency services. So I transfer credit uh, coming from medical college and uh, I did all my study, all my training with the firemen and then I failed the medical exam because of my eyesight. So I had this degree where we had done a lot of uh, hydraulic 
and I decided to continue with a master in uh, chemical engineering. And chemical engineering, you had two fields, oil and gas and water. And oil and gas wasn't for me, so I decided to go with water, and here I am. Interesting, Robert. I, I, I admit, you know, we've spoken a lot over the years. I didn't realize that you had initially um, uh, decided to be a, a doctor. Um, but I think the water sector is uh, lucky that you were able to uh, to switch. Um, Uber, following along with your background, can you give us a brief explanation of how the development banks like the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, etc., how they um, support the development of basic services? Yeah, I think the... the the multilateral development bank, but also some uh, uh, bilateral financing institution like the French Development Agency, KFW in Germany. Uh, there, there is, uh, uh, I would say, two banks. One is the Knowledge Bank that do a lot of sector work and uh, publish and do interesting work. And the other one is the Operation Bank that basically prepare project, finance project. Uh, there is a misconception that you need to be a, a banker to join a, a development bank. No, you come as a, there is some finance people, but the most interesting path is to, to join as a sector specialist. So the, the development bank will require this sharp technical expertise, this experience, overseas experience so that you can uh, you can deliver you know innovative solution or engage uh, with a wide range of counterpart of uh, uh, different capacities so the second misconception in development bank is that uh, the development bank decide on the work program actually is the government uh, I say it's like my wife, I propose and she dispose. So we propose to the government some sector to develop, some projects, some program, but at the end of the day, the, the government uh, uh, has to agree. The development banks offer cheap loans, very low, much lower than commercial market rate loans, and technical assistance. Those are the two things that they, that they generally bring to bear, and that Technical assistance can include things like grants that in, a, in addition to loans that have to be repaid. Is that a fair characterization or have, have, uh, have I left anything out? Yeah, that's a fair comment. Uh, country are classified uh, among least developed country. You even have a fragile state. Uh, least developed country, then you have middle income country and upper middle income country. And each of those countries will have uh, uh, of course, the, the more fragile or the least developed your country is, the more concessional uh, term and condition the, the loan will have. Okay, it's Jeff cutting in here uh, just for a moment. At this point, Hubert runs through what the development bank loan conditions look like. Uh, and he uses the term concessional here. That, that refers to a really low interest rate and a really long repayment period. For example, the interest rate on an Asian development bank loan to its concessional assistance country category, that's its most generous loan category, it's only 1.5% to be repaid over 32 years with an, an additional eight-year grace period at only 1%. Eight years grace period, 1% flat. So, uh, yeah, this is very attractive. But the role of the uh, – you have to understand that uh, – Country will eventually graduate from World Bank, uh, Asian Development Bank, and uh, others. So uh, World Bank was set up at the same time as United Nations under the Bretton Woods Accords after Second World War. Loan number one of World Bank was actually to France, uh, interestingly, after the war to, to basically uh, infrastructure repair. Uh, and... But uh, France graduated, a lot of countries uh, graduated uh, in the Asian region, uh, South Korea graduated. South Korea, it's interesting. They graduated prior to 1997, and then when the Asia crisis came, they 
they became eligible again to borrow. So one of the graduation criteria is the, the how developed are the capital market in the country. So basically, is the country able to access capital market? Projects are not only, uh, you know, I, I'm an engineer by background, and I feel when I started, I thought that uh, engineering technical was resolving everything. Then in my 30s, I find that uh, actually finance is going to resolve everything. And then in my late 30s, when I joined World Bank, I realized that actually social uh, is going to, uh, is, a, is a key uh, indicator, a, a key performance what do you success. Mean by, yeah, sorry, what do you mean by social? Like uh, a gender vulnerable group, uh, uh, rural folks, uh, all this, because in the private sector, when you privatize, you privatize mainly water services in cities, water and sanitation services, but you tend to forget about the rural area. And then, you know, uh, in World Bank, I basically learned the job about urban rural linkage, how, you know, the symbiosis between the two, uh, uh, actually through food security and the importance of water, irrigation taking 80% over water in terms of water resource and city taking less than 10% and uh, industry the rest. So you have this water food energy nexus, you know, that's very interesting. You have this food security dimension uh, and uh, all rely on water. Hubert, you know, we began working together 10 years ago now in Vietnam. And I think we've always been um, aware of and impressed by the rapid development in water services, including in rural areas. Can you uh, discuss, uh, maybe give us an introduction to, you know, what the Vietnamese have achieved in terms of uh, supply improvements uh, in rural and in urban areas? In 2007, they were preparing major legislation that will literally transform the sector. It was basically saying the water sector cannot, can no longer borrow uh, concession, highly concessional loan. And they have to be self-supporting and they have to use full cost recovery. Uh, I told my boss, I say, you know, to move from a municipal service to a corporatized entity with profit and loss responsibility, it's a huge transformational change and they are not going to make it. I say, why don't we talk to the government and use the water sector to hold the hand of uh, 20, 30% of the water company and accompany them in, in the implementation of this decree and a lot of uh, circular on how to calculate water tariff uh, and how to do. And uh, the government at the beginning was not uh, welcoming us at all. And it took us two years. And I basically, I told, I told my boss again, I say, look, now if we want this to happen, we need, we need to move. To, I need to move to Vietnam. I need to have a cup of coffee with those guys. I need to have lunch. I need to have dinner because those things don't happen in meeting. You need to engage with them and it's going to take time. So uh, they, they felt it was uh, too, too expensive. I, I remember telling the, the person in charge of the Minister of Finance, I say, you're managing the country like my grandma was managing the household, no debt. Uh, I say, the first thing I, I was telling them is, look, look at the cost of not doing the project. Look at how much it costs you not to have water or to have intermittent water supply, not only in terms of, uh, uh, you know, financial, but also in terms of uh, socioeconomic losses for the country, uh, public health, environment, uh, downtime because people that have waterborne disease cannot go to work. It's not that they are dying, but uh, uh, so we basically managed to tell them, look, look at the cost of not doing the project instead of looking how much it costs. And I say, and by the way, your legislation is saying that the water sector should be financially sustainable. So why you worry about repaying the loan? The tariff are going to be used to repay the loan. So 
I say, give me the benefit of the doubt. We're going to invest into project preparation. It's going to take one or two years and we're going to work together and you are going to see what you are going to do. If you don't like it, then... Yeah, this, this, this discussion with the uh, government officials eventually led to a very ambitious funding program that you managed. Can you, can you talk, describe a little bit the, um, the program? Yeah, so we first went, we identified uh, through the, the Vietnam resident mission, uh, national staff that knew the, the sector and the people who are the key stakeholders. I cannot go and see the prime minister, and, and he has no time for me. We selected also four champions uh, in the country. Very important because when you start to do something, you want to work with uh, a water company that want to dig themselves out of the hole and do something. So we work with Ho Chi Minh City, with Hue, with Danang, with uh, Haiphong, uh, uh, those uh, big cities. So we basically did project preparation and in project preparation for 18 months, every three months we do a stakeholder workshop. And I was inviting uh, my stakeholder from the central government and I was asking the local government and the water company to invite the media and the local uh, stakeholder. In Vietnam, you have two major uh, peer pressure group, the Women Union and the Fatherland Front. The Fatherland Front is the veteran association, uh, so the war veteran. Those two people, those two organizations sit in the People Council, which is the legislative assembly of the province, the city, or the rural district, and they have veto power. Uh, so you want those people on board when it comes to tariff increase and, and approving the project at the local level. And so basically, you know, we had uh, five, six, seven times uh, over the course of 18 months with those people. And then they became uh, our biggest supporter. Uh, and then the project uh, was very easy to approve at the local level, at the central government level. Uh, you know, with uh, and uh, with uh, Asian uh, Development Bank uh, as well, where uh, Asian Development Bank had a financial instrument called multi-trench financing facility. Uh, we agreed that it will be a one billion uh, facility uh, over ten years to finance. Okay, what's what does he mean by a multi-trench financing facility? That that's a program of the Asian Development Bank, and he applied it. Uh, in Vietnam for water supply as a $1 billion loan fund against which different water companies could borrow in order to meet the Vietnamese requirement to achieve financial sustainability. And you can think of the tranches as funding rounds, basically chunks of money that were made available at different points in time uh, for lending to these utilities. But you need to give back to the to the municipality, to the water user. How are you going to improve the 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 service that you are providing? What indicator can you control under this project and improve over the duration of the project? And what were some of those indicators? Uh, so, for example, non-revenue water, reducing non-revenue uh, water. Reducing non revenue water, uh, expanding right. coverage, okay. uh, uh, improving the water quality. Got it. Uh, corporate, corporatizing the water company. Got it. Uh, so technical, institutional, and financial. We were imposing some financial ratio, like uh, debt service ratio, uh, but it was basically to explain to them that if you want, if you don't increase tariff, then you, you, you cannot do. This issue of cost recovery obviously is very important. Um, you've noted this uh, legislative requirement in Vietnam to achieve cost recovery. Um, how did you think was the best way to approach this cost recovery requirement? Well, we, we first started to demystify a couple of things. The first one was that the poor people cannot pay for water tariff, high water tariff. So the tariff structure in Vietnam approved by law 
is a block tariff with a lifeline tariff. So there is no issue for poor people. Hubert, can you explain the lifeline uh, tariff, please? So it's a subsidy. The, the first tranche, the first 50 liter per day, uh, are, are basically given uh, with a very subsidized uh, tariff. And then the second block, above 50 liters per day per person, uh, is higher and, then, and, and so on and so on. So the, the study in the water sector showed that poor people can pay uh, within reason. Uh, we do affordability study, we do willingness to pay study, and people, we found that water services are affordable and people are willing to pay because the alternative cost of getting water was more like uh, five to ten times more. And unreliable supply through water tanker, for example, or unsafe water through a river or polluted uh, lake. Uh, so the, the safest way, and, and, and poor people adapt their water consumption to that. And built into the legislation, again, that was not an ADB requirement or World Bank requirement, the meter, the connection cost was included in the tariff. So there was no barrier to access the service. Usually, if you ask a, a, a vulnerable household, a poor family to pay uh, $100, $200 to connect, they cannot. But they can pay... Uh, uh, they, they, they can pay a, a water bill of 5 to $10 a month uh, by adapting the water consumption. And the thing, we move the discussion from uh, the price of the water per cubic meter to how much a household of four or five people will pay per month and how much this represents in the, in the household uh, budget. And like I said, those stakeholders, like the Women Union, the Fatherland Front, once it clicked, they became our biggest supporter. And I think they went and checked in, in the, the poor area of the, of the city and the village. And those people were telling them, yeah, we, we don't have water every day. We rely on the water tanker. And uh, we are paying, uh, you know, $1, $5. Uh, per cubic meter of water that we get, we get, uh, and, and this is very expensive compared to uh, a safe water that is delivered on your premises. We're also hoping to talk about some of the governance issues of uh, in Vietnam. Now, you've already um, shown quite clearly how uh, the legislative process drove um, sector development and the engage, engagement with the uh, don't, uh, development partners. Um, can you also, uh, Uber, tell us uh, what's your uh, view on how the um, you know the socialist um, uh, structure in Vietnam how this uh, influences uh, water sector development and how that might differ. Uh, uh, with countries that have, uh, say, more democratic uh, uh, governance system? You know, I had people telling me, we really want to have a good service, but we don't know how. How do I do this? How do I do that? Uh, so a lot of technical assistance program being, uh, being put uh, in, in order to help. And the most important things was to make the water company accountable. Like I say... Uh, I used to joke that uh, uh, full cost recovery is a blank check to inefficiency because if you are guaranteed that all your costs are going to be covered, uh, you have zero incentive to, to do uh, energy uh, uh, efficiency uh, or, or improving the level of service. Your costs are guaranteed to be covered by uh, tariff. Why should you improve? So, so this is an interesting one. So on the one hand, full cost recovery, as it was legislated by the government, was, some, was represented an opportunity for you. But at the same time, you also, you also uh, were able to intuit a little bit of a curse associated with that advantage um, in what you've just described, this blank check for inefficiency. So yeah, how, do you, how did you resolve those two things in the context of, of, the, of your, the billion dollar loan package you set up? The, the first thing was that uh, 
you know, the discussion is always, shall we pay the tar water tariff increase before the service improve or shall we pay after the service improve? And that's where cultural differences are very important. Uh, in Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, where NGO are quite strong, uh, they basically don't trust the government and tell them, look, you show me first your improvement, and then we agree that we're going to pay. In the water consortium in Malaysia, you know, some province, uh, the, it was when they, when they privatized the entire wastewater for the whole country, some province didn't get the service yet, but they were being charged for a service they didn't receive, and, and they rioted. And, and uh, like in Bolivia, yeah, yeah, they had to to stop charging people, and people say, "I, I don't benefit from the service. Why do you want me to pay?" Uh, so in Vietnam, we were lucky that uh, uh, first all the water company we work had a long history of not increasing tariff. Uh, the worst was Da Nang; they didn't increase tariff for seven years, uh, and. Uh, so people were expecting that something will happen. And the second, they, they trust the system. They trust the government. They know that the government will try its best to, to give a, a, a better solution. Uh, and so, for example, uh, let's take the example of Danang. Danang was supposed to go to Ho Chi Minh City in the first tranche of the loan. And they say, well, you know, we're going to postpone the water tariff next year. I said, fine, you go to tranche two. And they didn't believe me. And suddenly I, I'm calling for loan negotiation. I'm calling Ho Chi Minh City. And Danang was calling me in my office in Vietnam. Hey, we're ready to go. I said, no, you didn't increase tariff. You take your time. This uh, facility is in place for 10 years. Whenever you are ready, we come back. So they saw that we mean business. Uh, when you say, oh, you're, when, when you're going yeah. to trench two, you, you mean, so you're, you're not in the first round of loans. You basically yeah, don't qualify. You're not in the first round. You don't yeah, qualify. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, I don't live on promises. You know, Hubert, I, I, I'm sure that for some people, this, uh, uh, some of our listeners, the pressure that you applied with respect to increasing tariffs might raise concerns uh, in regard to lower income um, populations. How did you manage the... Uh, the social um, aspects of, of the tariff increases. So you basically do two types of study, willingness to pay in the project area and affordability. You want to make sure that uh, WHO recommend that uh, water and sanitation doesn't go over 5% of uh, average household income. So water supply may be two, three percent maximum. So we made sure in the socioeconomic study that the vulnerable group will benefit, uh, will be able to afford the tariff. And the second is that there is lifeline tariff. And the problem of the lifeline tariff, if you have, uh, I would say, share connection, if you have a, a group of uh, 10 house in a vulnerable area, rural or peri-urban, uh, that decide that they want uh, to share the connection, then they will never get the lifeline tariff because they will over-consume and they will be in the higher block. So this policy of having one house, one connection was actually very good and incentivized people to ask uh, for connection and to be connected. And the second is willingness to pay. We had a very high willingness to pay, uh, including from uh, uh, we call female-headed household, because they know and they understand the alternative cost of getting water for the household if they don't have a, a household connection. And I will even go further. In one of the provinces that had a high uh, percentage of ethnic minority, in Vietnam, by law, you cannot charge an ethnic minority for, for service. So water is supposed to be given for free. And the, the water service, the water company, were basically, well, we are not expanding the service to those uh, rural districts. 
of ethnic minority because they are not going to pay for it. So why should we spend money? While I say, you know, you have a duty and this and that, they say, yeah, but I, I, I cannot cross-subsidize. It's, it's not going to work. So we went to talk with the rural district uh, uh, of the ethnic minority and the, the 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 leaders of the district were basically saying, we want to pay for the tariff. I say, yeah, but that's against the law. Yeah, but we want to pay. We want the service. We need the service. So we went to see the governor of the province and we basically got an exemption from the government as a pilot. The advantage when you are World Bank or Asian Development Bank, you can ask the government for exemption. Say, look, we're trying something here. Can you please give us a break and, and let us uh, see how it works? If it works, then you can scale up at a national level. If it doesn't work, then we close the experiment and uh, it never happened. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, you know, in, in Vietnam, that's the best way of, uh, of uh, doing things. Uh, basically, you, you show. And we had a strong will and a strong push by the, by the people. So, you know, uh, well, one of our ob objectives for this uh, was to understand what is driving sector performance in Southeast Asia with a focus on Vietnam. You've identified, you know, very strong uh, government commitment. Uh, you've identified this trust in institutions from the, um, you know, from the uh, beneficiary side. You've also identified a strong uh, willingness to pay as long as uh, prices are within the affordability level. Um, one thing we have not spoken uh, yet about are the role of uh, key individuals in, um, in, in this process. Yeah, we, we had the example where we worked together over 10 years ago in uh, Tuatien Hue province. Uh, you have an individual, uh, Mr. Nam, who is the general director of the water company. His, his mentor is uh, Mr. His Excellency Exxon Chan, uh, who was the first, uh, I would say, real manager of the Phnom Penh Water Supply Authority that basically capitalized, improved governance uh, at all levels in the water company. Uh, for many years, it was the only company in Cambodia that had a pension fund. So people who work for the water company had a pension, uh, the only state-owned enterprise. And, and that's very important because if you get sacked from the water company, you lose your pension. So His Excellency Exxon was very skillful in telling his staff, look, if you are caught cheating, if, if you are caught uh, with corruption, you will be sacked and, and you will lose all your benefit. Uh, so suddenly people became... Uh, 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 another example about uh, Mr. Exxon Chan that uh, Mr. Nam is reproducing, you know, Exxon Chan tells this story himself. Uh, he say, I went to see some people uh, you know, especially some military camp that didn't want to pay for the water. Or he says some, some uh, influential rich people that didn't want to pay the water bill. So Exxon Chan will go himself to see those people. And he was telling them, look, I understand you have a money problem. I'm going to lend you the money to pay for the water bill. Now, like this... You, I can continue to provide you the service. Now you owe the money to me. And, and again, it's a cultural thing. This is so embarrassing in, in the South Asian culture to owe somebody something that, no, 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 I'm going to pay my water bill. Don't worry about it. Uh, so, you know, through very, uh, I would say, gentle peer pressure and all, uh, managed to, to get things done, both on the staff level. Basically, people knew at that time that, okay, I'm not going to be overcharged by the whatever reader uh, because I know that, uh, you know, they, they have good governance. Uh, and, and, and all the key performance indicators went uh, to the roof uh, in a good way. Uh, 
So, you know, non-revenue water in Phnom Penh is less than 5%. And Exxon was was telling me, nobody believed me. I went to Singapore International Water Week. Everybody laughed, saying, ah, yeah, this is not true and all. So he got PricewaterhouseCooper to audit and has a, a audit from Pricewaterhouse saying the, the non-revenue water is 3 or 4%. You know, in 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 our in the sector, there's always a lot of emphasis on the systems that underlie service delivery. Here in Cambodia, you've described you know how important an individual can be. Um, does it, in in areas where uh, government regulations enforcement is are still weak? Um, do individuals have a, a, a larger role to play, and, and should that be influencing how we uh, try to work with um, uh, with with partners and, and in, in countries with weak uh, regulatory systems? Yeah, I think you you know you you need a champion. You you need somebody uh, who wants to make a difference for his uh, province, for his city, for his village. So, Hubert, you had mentioned um, that the in the pro- province in Vietnam where you were working, where you were trying to uh, expand service to ethnic minorities who were who were legislatively prohibited from being charged a tariff, and, and yet wanted to pay because they knew that was the only way they were going to see service um, service increase. You had mentioned that one response that you had gotten from local authorities that, that was that they could not cross subsidize. Now, we hear now a lot about cross-subsidy uh, as a means of trying to deliver services to, um, to underserved populations. Now, in rural, uh, it's a common practice in, in wealthier countries. So the question I have for you is how much of that may be beginning to happen in Vietnam? I know the work that we did together um, was it explored that very concept whereby the, the the utility of way was the, the urban utility would cross subsidize operations for uh, for you know for rural populations in the in its vicinity and then if you could speak to that and then broadly about other forms of innovation whether they're operational innovations technological innovations financial innovations that that you were able to support um, through through the through the program you ran in, in Vietnam. Yeah, I would say we, we use uh, Tuatianue province as a, a demonstration on how technical innovation could uh, improve the standard. Uh, the discussion I had with uh, Mr. Nam, who was the general director of this uh, provincial water company, uh, is not a city water company, it's a provincial ah, water company. But, but they were working only on the provincial capital. Right, right. Thanks for clarifying that. Even though they had... So, because they were so good, we went to the provincial government and say, why don't you give responsibility to this company for the whole province? And then your rural water supply, urban water supply, small town, you know, you will have a good service. And then Mr. Nam got actually... The the the, gov- the provincial government was enthusiastic. I said, "Yeah, that's a great idea." And and I say, as governor of the province, you can make it happen. Uh, yes. So, Mister Nam was the hardest to convince because your key performance indicator under the benchmarking will go down, and he didn't want that. He was already at the top, and and he wanted uh, to make sure. So, we basically use your services. Uh, to demonstrate that we could use high technology in a rural context like ultrafiltration and provide good water quality because Mr. Nam's objective was to deliver drinking water quality to every household. He was actually very upset with me because he managed to get a grant from the French government for non-revenue water. His non-revenue water was 12%. And he wanted How much to is he going to be able to reduce it? What kind of play did he have? Go, right. let, and, and I told the French government, basically asked my opinion. And uh, I told them, uh, well, I think there is what a company that need this grant <laughs> much more than Mr. Nam because he's already very good. 
I'm working on uh, with in my new assignment uh, uh, with the Ministry of Construction. Ministry of Construction has a mandate under the current uh, social economic development plan, the five-year plan, 2021-2025. They are mandated by Prime Minister to find a model uh, to integrate rural water supply with urban water companies. So this is very interesting because since 2015, the water sector in Vietnam has been privatized extensively. Uh, and now they are moving into regulation. So basically enforcing uh, key performance indicator, including coverage, making sure that uh, the private water company uh, doesn't maximize profit, but continue to expand the service and continue improving the service. And we, I will recommend to the Ministry of Construction to continue learn from the experiment we did in Hue uh, so that, you know, they can scale up this to the rest of the country. You will basically show through your assignment in the province that we could have high technology uh, in rural water supply, we showed that we could develop an institutional model where the provincial water company will have oversight. I remember telling Mr. Nam, I said, look, you don't need, you can s delegate the operation and maintenance to communities that you train with our help. You can put small scale provider, but it's under your responsibility. Because what happened in rural water supply People, are, uh, rural folks are very resilient. When the system works, they use it. When it doesn't work, they don't complain. They go back to the old ways of getting water. So I told Mr. Nam, what I want is you to be able to make sure that the system continues to perform and to function. And if there is a problem, and most often is a very small operation and maintenance problem, I want you to send somebody to fix it so that we can have continuity of service. And, and, and this money that your government uh, spend uh, to, to invest in rural water supply is not wasted. Uh, you know, sort of asset management. And this is a language he understands. He is very keen on public funding and, 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 and value for money. And, and he was telling me, I don't need to privatize. I, I, I can do this myself. I can give you value for money. I can give you service uh, like a private company. Uh, but I strongly believe in the public sector. Back, back, back to the role of champions, Hubert. Yeah. I think what you're describing with respect to urban utilities or starting or provincial utilities starting to increase their focus on the rural sector is a trend that um, will also um, come up more and more uh, uh, in rural water development. Hubert, as, as we come to the end of this discussion, uh, as somebody who we know is interested in research, we, we have to mention that um, you're currently working towards your PhD degree. As somebody who's interested in research, what are your recommendations for the research priorities that real water should address? I, I you know, to me now we need to move the the especially the rural water uh, service into climate resilient uh, water service. And we need to include sanitation. And then we have uh, a windfall that is coming to us with a smart system. The cost of sensor, the cost of computer power, the availability of Internet of Things give us tremendous option for planning, for innovation, for, for financial sustainability, that deliver long-term operational sustainability. Uh, you know, I always say happiness is positive cash flow. The discussion is, you know, if the water tariff, if, if the water tariff are not affordable, uh, you need to work out with the local government or the central government shadow tariff. What is a shadow tariff? Shadow tariff is, is a public service obligation 
that will be paid to the operator, whether it's a community, whether it's a private, whether it's a public uh, uh, company, to basically make sure that they don't cut corner on operation and maintenance and continue to deliver the service. So, so if a, you're it's a subsidy, tariff, it's a, a subsidy. subsidy. And, yeah. and is it a results and it's a results based subsidy? Exactly, because okay. you can apply the, the same to the operator. You cannot ask the operator to cut corner and, and cut on maintenance and cut on operation cost uh, because the tariffs are not at the level they should be or because right. the tariffs are too expensive because they are not affordable. When people tell me, oh, here water is free, I say, no, somebody is paying for it. It can be fiscal transfer from the central government, uh, but, you know, somebody uh, pay for it. And same thing, my former boss in the in one of the French water company was saying, uh, I think he said this at the World Water Forum uh, 20 years ago, when people tell him water is a gift for God, from God, he said, yeah, but he forgot the pipes. <laughs> Research into this uh, financial aspect of uh, what is fair, affordability, willingness to pay, building awareness. If you built awareness and basically, you know, in those COVID, uh, uh, unfortunate COVID pandemic time, WASH program are the first line of defense of those people uh, in order to wash their hand, uh, be able to wash their hand with, uh, with clean water. So we have to build awareness. And the more you build awareness, the more people are willing to pay. Uh, you also have a nature-based solution, ecosystem-based approach uh, that can make, uh, is the same project, but you can use constructed wetland in order to do manage aquifer recharge. You can use those wetland also to retain the flood water for a couple more weeks. Uh, and, and uh, uh, reduce the time for drought. So there is a lot of things that nature-based solution and ecosystem-based approach can do, and we have to move away uh, from uh, gray infrastructure. By the way, Green Climate Fund is uh, starting to look into climate resilience infrastructure and thinking of how can we include the greenhouse gas emission that result from the manufacturing of concrete and steel. So this will give a major competitive advantage and, and an edge to nature-based solution that promote ecosystem-based approach. Uh, and I think, you know, it's not yet there, but uh, believe me, it's coming. And I think this is the, the right way to go. That's that's encouraging uh, note to end upon, Hubert, because, you know, uh, one of the key research subjects within real water is actually uh, the water, better water resources management. Hubert, we really, again, uh, are deeply grateful for, for your time uh, to, to really kick us off into this podcast series, and you're setting the bar really high for, for future guests. So, so thanks so much, no, thank uh, you. Hubert Jenny. Hubert, as, the, uh, as, as some in the sector call you. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I say my mom called me Hubert and my wife called me Hubert, and I heard everything okay. in between. <laughs> We've been speaking a lot about Hue, Huebert. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so thanks so much once again. No problem. Thank you really for the opportunity. This is my first podcast. Well, that was quite a ride. You gotta love Hubert. Uh, Rajiv, what stood out for you from that uh Discussion. Let's remind our listeners of the main podcast lenses that we use, financing, governance, and innovation. Jeff, where to start? I guess the first thing that struck me was on the matter of governance, and particularly the importance of motivated individuals committed to professional management. Um, the important stakeholders Uber described as he was building support for the billion-dollar lending facility in Vietnam specifically the Vietnam Women's Union and Fatherland Front. And in Cam Cambodia, of course, we've known about Exxon Chan and his amazing turnaround of the Phnom Penh utility, but I hadn't realized his influence on Mr. Nam of, uh, of Hue Wako, the Vietnamese water utility with whom we worked uh, a decade ago. Yeah, that account was so inspiring to hear particularly the bit uh, about Mr. Nam's commitment to public management of infrastructure. 
you know, well, and he said something like, I don't need to privatize to deliver excellent results to the consumer. It, it really takes someone with that mindset to even entertain the idea of assuming responsibility for the more challenging rural systems. You know, having high performers like Exxon Chan in Cambodia and Mr. Nam of Vietnam's Wei Wako, it's, it's really key to reinforcing trust in institutions. That, that's, that also revealed itself as a, a very big deal. Yeah. Um, dif- difficult elements to, to, to obviously replicate. Uh, um, but remember, there are, there are probably cultural norms in Asia and, and uh, beyond that in socialist societies that may play a role in, in building and maintaining the public trust. Uh, this, the discussions of financing, I thought, were also fine, uh, fascinating. The attention Uber and his Vietnamese counterparts paid to willingness to pay and affordability to make the case for setting sensible tariffs, that was really telling. Uh, going uh, In addition, demystifying the cost to the consumer by framing it in terms of monthly costs rather than volume costs. In addition, rolling connection fees into the monthly payments so that the cost could be spread out over time. And, um, and finally, you know, that account of the ethnic minorities in Vietnam who were exempted from tariffs and yet pleaded with Uber and ADB for the opportunity to pay for services so they, can get, so they could get better than, than what they had. Wasn't that mind-bending? Some of Vietnam's poorest people begging to pay for water. Uh, but of course, if you think about it, it makes sense because by being exempted from payment, they were also, in effect, being exempted from water service itself. You know, the service providers who were statutorily obligated to deliver water to these ethnic minorities free of charge weren't doing so since they wouldn't capture any of the revenue. I was also struck by the two sides of full cost recovery. On the one hand, it represents the, you know, the, the central operational objective of water suppliers uh, you know, being able to run sustainably. But on the other hand, you know, it's interesting to hear Hubert describe it as being a bit of a curse almost, because once a utility uh, achieves full cost recovery, it may lack the incentives to invest in improving uh, operational efficiencies or in expanding services to the hardest to reach or the most vulnerable customers. Right. And, and I guess the last bits I'd highlight were Hubert's reminders regarding the need to develop and evaluate strategies for improving climate resilience of water supplies, and, and also you know, giving reasons to be excited about these new technological innovations like sensors in the domain of in the Internet of Things. So there you go. Our first episode, we really hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to uh, continuing this journey in another few weeks. Thanks for listening. The Real Water Podcast is a production of The Real Water Project, a centrally funded research mechanism of the United States Agency for International Development. The views expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the views of the United States Agency for International Development or the United States government. Theme music by Morocco's own Risha. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And whatever platform you use, please do subscribe to the podcast. We'd love to hear what you think of it, so leave a review. And most importantly, please tell your friends and colleagues about us. It really helps us to spread the word. Thanks so much.